to First, First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians, chapter two. Today we'll be continuing in our, our message, what does it mean to believe uh, the Bible? What does it mean to believe the Bible? And we've been studying this for a couple of weeks now, and uh, so far we've, we've looked at um, the good news, and we talked about how believing the Bible means accepting its authority in every area of life, and we saw how in Thessaloniki they actually received the Word of God, which had to do with their understanding of it, their, their head, but then they also accepted it, and we, we said that had to do with their heart. And uh, you have to do both of those. And it's important that we understand that the Word of God is sufficient for anything that we have, any, any needs we have. We don't need to look outside of it. Um, and so we need to be reminded of that because it's easy to, to look elsewhere when we're dealing with issues or problems in life, sometimes we, we want to look somewhere else other than the Bible. And the Bible says that it's, it's Christ is sufficient to meet all of our needs. And so we, we understood that they received it, they accepted it, and we talked a little bit about what it does on our behalf. And I'm just going to read this quickly, what we talked about last week. We, we talked about the Word of God being effective in our lives, that it saves us, that it sanctifies us, that it matures us, as believers, that it frees us, that it has the power to perfect us, counsel us, build us up. It ensures our spiritual success, and it also gives hope. It also gives hope. And so this morning, we're going to turn our hearts once again to First Thessalonians chapter 2, and we've read this several times, so I'm not going to do that this morning, but we're going to be in verses 13 to 16. And we talked about the good news, and we also talked about the sad news last week. We, we started on this uh, point, and we said believing the Bible means accepting the opposition it brings. Believing the Bible accepts the opposition it brings. And we saw there in verse 14 where he pointed that out. And if you believe the Bible, we said that you're going to have some strong enemies, today in this world. Not everybody is going to just be so happy you're a born-again Christian who holds fast to the Word of God. Many people will criticize you. Um, A dear brother sent me this, an email with this article attached to it, and I thought I would just read it for us as a way of introduction because it really opens our eyes to what goes uh, goes on in a lot of parts of the world that we don't uh, deal with here. And the headline says, dozens of North Korean Christians executed on site after secret meeting disrupted by authorities. This was dated May 21st, 2022. It says, a horrifying account of mass execution has reportedly leaked out of North Korea, one of the worst nations in the world to be a Christian. According to Open Doors USA, several dozens of Christians were meeting in secret in an unnamed region when they were discovered by authorities. Every single one of them was executed on site. In North Korea, 
It's against the law to follow Jesus Christ. And Christians are forced underground to an extreme degree. The organization Open Doors says that it was suspected the secret meeting location was leaked to authorities. Who also proceeded to arrest over 100 non-Christian family members of the believers. Who were placed in some of North Korea's most notorious cruel prison camps. Quoting someone who's been there, inmates are treated as animals. They're tortured and they're forced to do harsh labor with little food. They say these camps are said to be even worse than places like Auschwitz under the Nazi regime. It says in North Korea, it is illegal to worship Jesus or to have a Bible. You can't possess it. For the last three decades, believers have been known and treated as, quote, the hostile class. Anything that gives people an alternative allegiance to the ruling Kim dynasty is deemed to be dangerous to the state. Christians must hide their faith, even from their own children. As a result, coming to worship Coming together to worship Jesus is basically a death warrant if you choose to do that in that that country. And yet, as the report indicates, secret Christians are risking their lives to be part of a church or to even own a Bible. They're facing death to worship Jesus, knowing that their only hope is in him. One brother who was in one of these prisons, he said this, while I was in prison, I could not understand everything, but I felt the Christians in different countries praying for us who were imprisoned. It provided comfort, and it became became a source of energy to us. Even if we cannot meet each other, let us Communicate through the Spirit in Jesus Christ. I mean, we take for granted, do we not, the freedom that we have to worship here together as a church in this country? In many countries of the world, this would be considered an illegal gathering, what we're doing here this morning. We would be considered enemies of the state. And we shouldn't forget to keep our brothers and sisters who were under the rule and reign of some very evil men all over the world. We need to keep them in prayer because they're living faithfully their Christian life. I don't know how many of us would be here this morning if we knew at any moment soldiers could come in and put a bullet in our brain just for being here. I suspect many of you wouldn't be here, which is unfortunate. But that's where we're at. We need to be sensitive to that, but we also need to be encouraged to be bold in our witness for Christ because that one day, I believe, will even come to this country. Well, last week we were looking at verses 13 and 14 where he says, For you brothers became imitators 
of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. And he said, you suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. Now today I want to spend a little bit of time on that little phrase, suffered from the Jews. That phrase, suffered from the Jews. I want to ask you one simple question here this morning. Who are the Jews? Who's he speaking of in that, in that text? Suffered from the Jews. Who is he talking about? Does it refer to all the Jewish people? As church history has continued to argue? Or is it a restricted usage? Applicable only to the Jewish religious leadership. And you say, well, what does it matter? It it, it has grave, (laughs) grave consequences in your understanding of world events and of biblical history. I believe the latter is correct, and I want to show you why. I believe when he says they suffered from the Jews, he's speaking of the Jewish leadership, the religious leaders in that time and day. He's not speaking of all the Jewish people. I'm going to take the time to do this because it's a very serious issue in the church and throughout the New Testament. It's really created a bombardment against the Jewish people. This one verse down through the years that you cannot believe. They're looked upon as the enemy. It's in the writings of many of our our, our church leaders and church fathers even. And so does this apply to all the Jewish people? Or does it just apply to the Jewish leadership? Which we all know was indeed corrupt. Right? They were completely corrupt. Our deepest commitment here this morning is to the word of God. Not by what tradition says, not by other, what other people say, but our deepest commitment is to the Bible. And so if we understand what the Bible is saying when it talks of the Jews, then we'll have a clearer understanding of this whole controversial uh, subject. And if you doubt that it was controversial, that it is controversial, do you remember the movie The Passion of the Christ? You remember when that came out? I just want to read from a couple articles here. It says, Gibson was criticized by some in the Jewish community who viewed the film as anti-Semitic. Having seen the movie under duress, this person goes on to say, I didn't think that, but other, uh, one gospel tells the story of Jews being asked which prisoner they wanted to uh, free in honor of Passover, Jesus or the thief Barabbas. They chose Barabbas. For centuries, this was the basis of anti-Semitic thought that basically says the Jews killed Jesus. It's the Jews' fault. And the accusation has little or no evidence in Scripture, and that's what we're going to look at today. Now, remember the context of these verses. Remember that, that Jesus was rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. I want you to turn to Matthew 23. 
We're going to be jumping around here. The, the, the verses are there in your outline, and we're not going to get through all these, but we're going to get through a majority because this is such an important subject matter. And so the question is, when it speaks of the Jews, who are they talking about? Is it talking about all the Jewish people or just the religious leaders? Well, here he is rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 29. And Jesus says very clearly, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Turn down a little further in verses 34 and 35. Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, which is, is basically the first, that's another name for the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And when it refers to the blood of Zechariah, that is found in Second Chronicles, which is basically in the Hebrew Bible, it's the last book. <laughs> so it's saying from the first to the last, it says, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. So is he talking here about all Jewish people who killed the prophets and, and who crucified him? Is that what he's saying? No, he's talking about who? He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. He's talking about those in the, the Jewish leadership. Well, let's take a look at what Jesus himself says about his own crucifixion. In Matthew chapter 16, turn there, Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. From all the Jewish people. Oh, it doesn't say that. What does it say? From the elders and chief priests and scribes. Interesting. And be killed, and on the third day he would be raised. This is the Lord himself saying this. We need to make sure we're reading our Bibles. The evidence is overwhelming on this subject. He's not talking about all the Jewish people here. For the Bible even says that the common people who were Jewish people... Heard him what? Gladly, it says. So he's talking about the Jewish leadership. He's talking about the religious leaders. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 to 19. Matthew chapter 20. And these are all places where it points out that at times you can see when he refers to the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish leadership. And we're going to be looking at some verses when he refers to the Jews, he's referring to the Jewish people. Verse 18, he says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to who? The chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. Who? The chief priests and the scribes. Not all the Jewish people, the religious people, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And then it says in verse 19, and deliver him over to the Gentiles 
to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Wow, it doesn't even say that the Jewish leaders crucified him. All they did was condemn him to death. It says here that the Gentiles, the Romans, would be mocking him and flogging him and and crucifying him. And he will be raised on the third day. According to Jesus, who will mock, flog, and crucify him? The Gentiles. Who will sell him out? Well, that was the religious leaders. But there's no mention of the Jewish people as a whole here. How we jump from that to blaming all the Jewish people for killing the Messiah. That's what a lot of Bible teachers teach. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Look at verses 3 and 4. Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4, it says, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth, in other words, secretly at night, and kill him. All the Jewish people doing this? No. Who? Only the Jewish leadership. Matthew 27 couple pages to the right, verse 1 and 2. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people. Oh, it's not all the people. It's the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Verse 41. Jump down to verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, and they said, oh, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. Verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. As who? As the Jewish leaders. We know now, and so do the Jewish leaders of today, they know that was a a terribly uh, corrupt, it was an awful period of time for the Jewish priesthood in the first century. They were very corrupt. The case even gets more interesting when you turn over to the Gospel of John. Turn over to the Gospel of John chapter 1. Because we see the same theme. We find the specific title, the Jews, to refer not to all the Jewish people, but in fact to a select group. Verse 19 of John chapter 1. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Well, who's going who's to send these? Who has the authority to send priests and Levites? It's the Jewish leadership. The common day Jewish person had nothing to do with this. To ask him, who are you? 
the common people can't send them. We were talking about the, the leadership here. And then in verse 24, it even tells us, now, they had been sent from who? From the Pharisees. Well, who are the Pharisees? They're the, the Jewish leadership. Once again, people like to take the Bible and they twist it and they come out with the wrong teaching on this matter. It was the corrupt Jewish religious leadership that was selling Jesus out. And he was at, they were actually also attacking John the Baptist, as you recall. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 10. John chapter 5, verse 10. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, remember he was healed and they were questioning the veracity of what was going on. It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. It's funny how when you get off a little bit in your religion, how your priorities can get all messed up. This guy was just healed, and they're, they're more concerned about him taking up his bed. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. All the Jewish people? No, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, but he answered, Jesus answered, my father is working until now, and I am working. Look down at verse 18. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to what? To kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, there's not a Bible commentary out there on this passage that doesn't say that's referring to the Jewish leadership. It's not referring, when it says the Jews, it's not referring to all the Jews, it's referring specifically to the Jewish leadership. They're called the Jews. Also over in John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Look at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. All the Jewish people? No. Only the Jewish leadership. The Bible is consistent. We just read in Matthew's gospel how it was the chief elders and the scribes who were seeking to kill him and making their plans to do so. And here it says the Jews were seeking to kill him. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Who's he talking about here? Yet for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leadership, the common everyday Jew, would not even speak openly of him because they were afraid of their own leadership. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem... It says, therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So these are people of Jerusalem, Jewish people, and they're saying, hey, wait, isn't this the guy they're seeking to kill? Well, who's they? Their leadership. They weren't seeking to kill him. It was their leadership. And here he is speaking openly, verse 26, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? 
refers to the, they refer to the authorities. Verse 31, yet many, look at this, many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd, mostly made up of Jewish people, muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Look down at verse 31 of chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 31. Look at this verse. So Jesus said to the Jews, the same two words in our English Bibles, who, what, had believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So when it refers to the Jews, sometimes it's referring to the Jewish leadership specifically. Other times it's referring to a group of people who we would call Messianic Jews who came to Christ. They believed in him. Chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. It says, so the Pharisees, the Jewish leadership, asked him, how he had received his sight when the guy was blind and Jesus healed him. And he said to them, he had put mud on my eyes and washed, and now I see. Verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Once again, you get off in your religious understandings, your priorities are so far out of whack. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs. And there was a division among them. Wow. Division among them. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So here it's referring once again to the leadership. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. Well, I thought we just read a moment ago that many of them, many of these Jews had believed in him. Do you understand what I'm getting at? It depends on the context in which you're reading these words. You can't just say, oh, the Jews as a people, they rejected the, the Messiah. They're, they're bad people across the board. And No. There's a restrictive usage here of the term the Jews depending on the context. Verse 22, his parents said that these things Uh, said these things because they feared the Jews. They didn't fear all the Jewish people. They feared the Jewish leadership, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Well, a common Jew couldn't put somebody out of a synagogue. It had to be the Jewish leadership. Every single one of these passages are used by people today to prove their anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic, hatred of the Jewish people, and they say, well, they crucified Jesus. So they're the enemies of the church. This is a very, very serious matter. In John chapter 10, verse 31, it says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and many believed in him there. Wow. You mean all the Jewish people tried to stone him? No. No. It was the religious leaders who was doing this. He was dealing with a constant confrontation from the religious leaders of his day. 
It's very simple to figure out why, because he was stealing their thunder. They had a corner on the market, and all of a sudden this man came out of nowhere, the Messiah, and now he's garnering huge crowds and doing all these miracles. They had to delegitimize him as an individual and his ministry. And basically threaten any who followed him. In John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. (laughs) We'll kill the evidence. Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and what? Believing in Jesus. See, context is everything, folks. We can't just pull verses out and say this and say that with this. No. We have to understand the context of the scriptures. And you can go on. We can go on all day here. We don't have time, but we can go on over in the book of Acts. It talks of this. Um, Acts chapter 4, when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, he's talking to the leadership, if we are being examined here today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, He's speaking to the leadership whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus, verse 11, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. If you're here this morning and you're unsure of your salvation, you haven't trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't go any further than the cross. Just come to the cross. Christ died for your sins. He willingly gave up his life for yours. And he was a perfect sacrifice, and he completed and paid completely for all of our sins, past, present, future. If we would only trust in that sacrifice and stop trying to make our own sacrifices, stop trying to clean ourselves up, but become humble and say, you know what, I can't save myself. I need the Lord. I need Christ. He will not reject you. And you can go through the other verses there listed on your own. But it's important to just understand um, there's a unique, even a, a unique group of people called the Jews who are now in the context of First Thessalonians, they're, they're tracking Paul. And um, a lot of Bible teachers, basically, what they say about that is they call them the Judaizers. You ever heard that? Because they wanted to kind of impose a, a, a rule of circumcision and bring the law upon the Gentile converts and the Jews. And uh, the Jewish leadership were constantly uh, 
after Paul and his cohorts. They were, they were constantly attacking him for his positions on this. That was not all the Jewish people. That was just the Jewish leadership. My point is this. We have to be careful what we read, even by what we would claim to be some good Bible teachers today, because there's a small, uh, well, it's actually growing. There's a large, I would say, a large growing segment of theology today in the church. We call it replacement theology. And they claim it's supported by history. There's a growing idea here that somehow Israel, the Jewish people, has been replaced by the church. And they would say, well, you know, that's Israel, that's Old Testament, but the church is, you know, that's where it's at. That's what's happening, the New Testament church. You know, we don't have to worry about Israel. They're irrelevant. They disobeyed God. God's judging them. And they believe that the church somehow has replaced Israel as God's chosen people. I'm here to tell you they haven't. No one's replaced Israel. God has not cast away his people. If he did, then he's a liar. Because he says throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, they'll come under judgment, but he's not going to cast them away. And even Paul in the New Testament says, hey, I'm I'm an example here. I'm still here. I'm not cast away. He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. And this lie has gone on for years and years within the church. And you say, well, what does it matter? It it matters extremely. Not only does it garner a lot of anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish thought in the church, which is completely wrong. Last time I checked, the Bible says those who support Israel will be blessed. Those who don't, you better watch out. I want to be on the right side of that equation, frankly. I wish our politicians would understand this. In many Bibles, they say that the churches coming back to 2 Thessalonians, these churches in Judea that he talks about here, these were churches made up of Gentiles. And there was no record of any messianic communities whatsoever during this time. That has been held, and you can go to study Bible after study Bible in the margins, and they refer to these lies basically as truth. It's just not true. It's not true. Matter of fact, in more recent years, they've found even in the Hula Valley over in Israel, uh, if, if you ever go to the Middle East, you see all these little hills, they call them... Uh, uh, they're like little mounds of dirt, tells, and they're all over the place. And a lot of them are, are archaeological excavation sites that haven't been excavated yet. Well, they started digging around in some of these, and they found in those little mounds that stick up, there's thousands of them over there, they found three totally Jewish messianic villages. And they can tell from everything from the cookware to writings on the walls and everything from the first century A.D. 
And what's amazing is the government and the religious department of Israel has now even admitted something that they have denied for years. Well, they couldn't deny archaeology, right? I mean, they're the ones that are big proponents of digging up the earth over there and finding their history. And, well, they found out that, wow, these were actually Jewish messianic cities and villages all over Israel in the first century A.D. See, if you just wait long enough, folks... um, we catch up to the Bible. You know, a lot of the, the modern day thought is, oh, you know, the Bible's old and it's got to catch up to modern. No, usually it's the other way around. You know, science and everything has to catch up to the Bible because the Bible's true. We know that to be true. It's God's word. It can't be anything but true. So when you come back to First Thessalonians, the resistance that they were experiencing was similar, it says, to the churches in Judea. And that attack came from who? It came from the Jewish leadership. It came on from their own leadership. I mean, Paul himself, I mean, when he was on the road to Damascus, who gave him those letters that he was going to hunt down those Christians? I mean, the Bible tells us it was the chief and the priests, the elders. They're described as the, the Sanhedrin, which was basically a puppet government of Rome. Back in the time, they were one of the most corrupt governments in all the world. They were the ones that gave Paul the letters to continue his persecution of the church all the way to Damascus. It wasn't the Jewish people. Paul was Jewish. And they were stirring up trouble for Paul and Silas and Timothy And it was because of this that they had to leave Thessalonica. And they went down where? To Berea. And it says in Berea, the people there examined the scriptures carefully for themselves. We need to do this more often. Stop relying on somebody who's got a radio program or a TV show to tell us what the Bible means. Open up the Bible yourself and ask God to give you the plain understanding of the text. He'll do it. He'll help you. Nothing wrong with using resources. But they didn't have all these resources back then. They studied. They examined the scriptures to make sure that what someone was saying was true. Just because somebody's standing behind a podium or a pulpit doesn't make them right. I always say the only difference between the people that are sitting in the church and the person that's speaking in the church is, is the direction they're facing. That's the only difference. So let's be very clear here. Israel is still God's chosen people here on this earth, and God has not forsaken Israel for the church. The church has not replaced Israel. I just had to get that off my chest. So we looked at the good news. We looked at the sad news. And now, unfortunately, we're going to look at the bad news. We've seen that believing the Bible means accepting its authority in every area of life. It also means accepting the opposition it brings. But then lastly here, the bad news. Believing the Bible means accepting its judgment on society. Look at what it says in verse 15. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, that they might be saved. 
So it's always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. These are very, very sobering words for us. And you see, basically, I put four down, but there's actually five here in the text, these participles that kind of just pop off the page at you. The first one, it says, they killed Jesus and the prophets. The Lord Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 23. We read that, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her? How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. They killed the messengers of God. Barclay, commentator, he points this out. No man ever rendered a measure a no man ever rendered a message inoperative by slaying the messenger who brought it. No one ever rendered a message inoperative by slaying the messenger who brought it. This is certainly true in the Christian faith of those who have suffered, those who died a martyr's death. Thousands of people have gone on before us in many situations. The word has prospered as a result of their death. If you want a history lesson on this, talk to Dave Bullen. He knows all that stuff. He can take you right down the line of Bibles over there and explain certain things. There's a book over there, Fox's Book of Martyrs. If you've never read it, not that particular book, it's pretty big, but you can get one, a personal copy of it, and read it. And it's really amazing what people gave up so that we could sit here in freedom and study God's word. But it also says there, they drove us out. They drove us out. Here it's referring to the fact that the many places that Paul ministered, um, you know, he, there in verse 15 it says, and drove us out. Wherever he went, the religious leaders of Paul's day were fixing to get him somehow, some way. They wanted to end his ministry. They wanted to discredit him. They were always, always sowing seeds of doubt in the religious people of the day. And this is true here in Thessalonica as well. It would seem reasonable that even though the the Jews would refuse to accept the message of Jesus Christ, that they would be willing to let others at least hear it and respond according to the dictates of their own heart, but that was not the case. They said, no, we don't like this message. We're going to drive you out of here, Paul. And also, the third thing there is they're not pleasing. They're not pleasing God. It says that they drove them, they drove them out, but also the, the, the mere fact that they were not, um, they were not pleasing God. Um, this really hits home with any godly Jew because their whole lives are spent in pursuit of wanting to please God. That's all they want to do. And how do they choose to do it? They choose to do it by the performance of all these certain laws and ordinances that they've created for the people to follow and all that stuff. And they think somehow that's going to bring uh, pleasure to God. They're not pleasing God by the way they're acting here. It's, it's the very opposite
It's one thing to displease a spouse or displease a family member. But stop and think about it. I mean, when you displease God, that's a pretty big deal, I would say. I mean, we should be a little concerned about that. I shared this before, but I've always remembered this illustration of this. Uh, it, it was down at, um, I think, Grace Community Church, and the youth pastor there, he was counseling a couple and, and before they were married, and unfortunately they had crossed that line of physical intimacy, and they, they came to him, and they were kind of unloading their burden on him, and he just sat there quietly, and finally they said, well, aren't you going to see anything? Aren't you going to say anything to us? And he simply looked at him and he goes, well, someone saw you. Well, they were devastated, obviously, right? Like, what do you mean someone saw us? There's no way anybody... No, nope, someone saw you. What? They came to you? And they're just, you know, obviously, can you imagine being in that situation? If someone says that to you, you would be terrified. And then finally he paused and he goes, God saw you. And their response was one of relief. Oh, okay. We thought you meant somebody actually saw. Isn't that how we live our lives, though? I mean, we go out every day and we do things. We speak in ways we ought not to speak, thinking, oh, whatever, nobody's going to hear us. Nobody's. God's hearing you. Every word we say. Are we pleasing God in the way we live? They weren't. They weren't. And also here they were, they were hostile to men. Hostile to men. Displeased God and they oppose all mankind, it says. By this, what he means is basically they were just concerned about their own rights, their own privileges. They were thinking only of themselves. Everybody else was what? The enemy. Everybody else was the competitor. Someone had to be obliterated so they could succeed. In Mark chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, And they were watching him, speaking of Christ, they were watching Christ to see if he would heal them, him on the Sabbath, in order that they might accuse him. They were hostile to everybody. 1 Corinthians 2.8 says, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. Even the account of Paul in Acts 26, verse 14, And when he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice, he said, saying to me in a Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Or in Hebrews 2.9, But we do see him who has been made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. They were hostile to everyone. 
But the fifth thing here that's not in your outline, they actually forbid us, forbid them to tell the gospel to others who might be saved. They just didn't disagree with the message. They actually forbid them. It says there in verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. The Jewish leadership had such hard hearts, they didn't care if people were being healed by the thousands. They they had no concern for the common people. They wanted to hold on to their power. And with Jesus on the scene, he was creating havoc in this area because the common everyday Jewish person and the, even the Gentiles were looking at the Jewish leadership and they're saying, hey, what, what have you done for me lately? You know, this guy fed me. This guy healed me. He, he says he's the son of God. He says he's the Messiah. What do you got for me? And all the religious leaders could do is, well, you know, you need to keep these rules. doesn't matter who got healed, what they did he get healed on. See, that, that's how legalism, that's how that kind of mentality can just sink in so quickly. And pretty soon, we're criticizing people for things that have nothing to do with anything. That's what legalism is. Legalism is kind of making a rule about something that, that the Bible's not real clear on. You know, it's not legalistic to tell someone, hey, you know what? You shouldn't sleep with your, your neighbor's wife. That's called adultery. That's wrong. That's not being legalistic. What's being legalistic is, you know, hey, um, you know, you're a guy. Maybe your hair shouldn't be so long. Or you're, you're a woman, maybe, oh, you know, maybe you shouldn't wear pants. I mean, there's people that actually believe this stuff. It's legalism. But here, the Jewish leader, leaders were for, forbidding Paul and anyone of sharing the gospel. Because they believed that they had to keep this offer of the love of God exclusively to themselves. After all, they were God's chosen people. God, we're not going to go out and share this message with anybody. We are God's chosen people. All others will be damned. We don't care. That's their problem. There's no room in heaven for them. I mean, we don't want heaven to be all cramped. So, hey, God, just keep them out of here. They're not, they're not of the nation of, of Israel. When the whole purpose God gave them the word of God in the beginning was what? To share it. To share it. And they held it close to their chest. I mean, if you want to stay in darkness, that's your privilege. But it's a terrible sin to put out the light so that others can't see. There's something fundamentally wrong with any religion that cuts off a man from his fellow man just because of of their belief. Someone said the greatest sin is not in refusing salvation. The greatest sin is in trying to keep others from believing. This is the day and age in which we live, beloved. I heard someone tell someone one time, hey, if you prefer to go, go to hell, that's your business. But, but, but please don't try to take others with you. There are those 
who will never attend a church meeting, an evangelistic meeting, but they'll stop, they'll do anything to stop others from attending. We see it in our culture today. They won't accept Christ, but they mock the co-worker who comes to faith. They won't lift a finger to help save an unborn child, but they'll ridicule those who work at the crisis pregnancy center. It's a very ungodly atmosphere in society in which we live today. And that's why here at the end of our verses here, he says, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. They heap up their sins to the limit. They don't stop. The word means to fill it up to the brim. We don't know where this point is in God's, from God's perspective. But you know what? There is a limit. There definitely is a limit. One day we will all be held account, held in judgment. The difference is those who have trusted in Christ have any failings and shortcomings and sins forgiven. And forgotten for that matter. But here, the judgment of God is going to fall on these people because they just keep they keep going down this path. They don't care. And then it says, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. The word is both present and future, by the way. Our God is very patient, amen? But his patience has limits. Eventually, the storm clouds roll in and finally break over the heads of the unbelievers. You don't want to be in that position, beloved. There may be a long delay, but trust me, the fires of hell will come at last to those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's judgment on any society that rejects his revelation, that rejects his word, that doesn't believe the Bible, to be the word of God. And you can't just reject him with impunity and nothing happen. Eventually, something will happen. No nation can ever just sin forever without reaping a divine punishment, a divine judgment. And I think that we just need to be Understanding that, as Martin Luther said, he said, our conscience is bound by the word of God. Here we stand, we can do no other. See, our only basis of authority is it's not an individual, it's not a person, it's the word of God, it's the Bible. It's not going to win us brownie points with the world to take that view. It's not enough just to say, I believe in Jesus because he solves all my problems. It's not enough to say, well, I come to this church because I meet nice people. That's beside the point. We must not claim to be Christians simply because of some advantage we receive. 
We must believe because the message is from what? It's from God. And therefore, it's fundamentally true. No other answer will suffice. So we've seen the good news that the Bible is true, and when we believe it, when we receive it, God's power is released in our lives. We've seen the sad news of the persecution that comes sometimes. Sometimes the sad news is that those who are closest to us will often oppose our Christian faith. And the bad news is that God's wrath comes upon those who reject his word. In 1948, this church, Grace Bible Church, was founded. And it was founded on the bedrock belief that this book that we hold in our hands is God's word. It's the Bible. It's true. It's infallible. It's inspired. And a lot of stuff has changed over the years. But that hasn't changed at all. And by God's grace, it will never change. Remember the little chorus you used to sing at camp. No turning back. No turning back, right? See, believing the Bible is serious business. There's no turning back. I remember at a youth outing seeing a a slogan on the side of a church van. It had the, the name of the church, and it was the most unusual slogan I ever saw for a church. Under the name of the church were these words, there is no substitute for the word of God. I thought, wow, that's really good. There's no substitute for the word of God. It sums up everything that we've been trying to go through the last several weeks. There's no substitute for the word of God. Our founders believe in it. That's why they started this church 74 years ago. And we still believe in it. And with God's help, we'll continue to believe in it until Jesus returns. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that Paul was so committed to your word that the people in Paul's day understood what it meant to suffer for the gospel. We have no clue whatsoever. Lord, we pray for those in the world today who are suffering for the cause of Christ, those who have given up their lives in many parts of the world because they're followers of you. They're, they're believers in, in the Bible. They, they hold true to your word. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have here in this country. But, Lord, please, please help us not to take it for granted. Father, help us to always be cognizant of the fact that that freedom could be taken away just with a sweep of a pen. And, Lord, we pray that we would take advantage of the time we have, that we will preach the gospel, that we will be bold in our faith, that we will leave this building knowing that we are entering the mission field here in Redwood City on this peninsula. There's many people who need to know about your message of salvation through Christ and Christ alone. Some of them are in the church, some of them are outside the church for that matter, and we pray that you would give us the boldness and the tenacity and the grace and the love to share that message with them and that we would see many new faces who have come to Christ as a result of this body going out and doing what it's called to do, to take this message to all the world. We pray here this morning, if there's any here that has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that today might be the day that they cry out to you in belief and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Save me from my sin. I want to 
take my sin and lay it on the cross, knowing that it was on the cross that you died for my sin. Not only that, but you were taken down and you were put in a tomb. And you were dead. And on the third day, you rose victorious over sin and death, just like you promised. I want to believe in in someone who can change me, make me the kind of person that you desire me to be. Free me from the guilt and the burden that I carry with the sin that I have in my own life each and every day. Bring that to Christ. He will free you. He will allow you to walk in a way that's honoring to him each and every day. It's not easy, but he gives you the wherewithal to do it. He gives you the church. He gives you his spirit. He gives you his word. And for that, we're thankful. Pray you bless our time across the way as we have fellowship and food together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen, amen.